We should follow Jesus' example, who laid aside his own rights in order to fulfill God's mission for his life. Humility is believing and obeying God's word and putting others' needs before your own. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open uh, to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 5. We're in a series, as you know, in the book of Philippians. Paul wrote this letter to the church located in Philippi when he was imprisoned in Rome. This has been the end of about a four-year time of prison sentencing. This is the thank you letter. In essence, he's writing a letter of thanks to the Philippian church. They have been very supportive of him, both financially and personally. And he is in what would appear to be very dire circumstances, being imprisoned, but the gospel is going out to the Praetorian Guard. And Paul is filled with joy despite very, very difficult circumstances. And he's been encouraging the church to live as citizens of heaven. He says, look, you belong to the king of kings. You're a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth. So live according to the principles, practices, and values of heaven. This passage we're going to study this morning, beginning at verse 5, is the richest passage in the entire New Testament on the, the doctrine of, of God becoming man, God taking on humanity. John 1.14 says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, which is profound uh, truth. The lesson this morning, we're going to attempt to flesh out the details and the implications of what that means. But as profound as this theology is, this wasn't the point of this particular passage. Paul didn't write this for a theological purpose. He wrote these verses to give us an illustration of humility. He said Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility, and Paul has been discussing unity and humility in the life of the church because the Philippian church has been arguing with each other. They've been taking sides. There's disunity. Sounds familiar, right? And he's been working on the notion that humility produces unity and why unity is important. So let's work backward beginning at verse 3, Philippians 2 verse 3. He says, if you want to achieve unity, you do it through humility. And what does humility look like? He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So putting others' needs ahead of your own is the definition of humility. Now, humility produces unity. So what unity is, the definition of it, how it's manifested, how you know it is divine in verse 2. He gives us a fourfold definition of unity, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Any organization from a couple, a married couple, to a family, to a church, if they're of one mind, one love, same purpose, they get along, right? And they have peace and unity. So why would you be motivated to go to all the work of being of the same mind? 
and the same love, spirit, and purpose. Why would you want to humble yourself so you're of one mind with other people? Well, because of all that Jesus has done for you. If you listen to verse 1, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, is there any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or compassion, he says, look, since Jesus has encouraged you and saved you, since Jesus loves you, since Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit, since Jesus has shown you compassion and mercy, it's reasonable to love his children, your spiritual family. So humility produces unity. By the way, that's no more profoundly found than in marriage. When you serve each other, it produces unity. Is that not correct? When you serve yourself in marriage, it divides you. Selfishness will destroy any relationship in 15 minutes. Right? That's one of the reasons we have the divorce rate we have. So humility, very practically, when you serve your spouse, it produces unity between the two of you. The same thing on a larger scale is at the church, right? And the world at large. So we should be motivated to pursue unity through humility because of what Jesus has done for us. And Paul says, and he actually begs the question, so why is unity so important? Why bother with this thing called unity? Well, sin has separated us from God and also from each other. When the church is unified... It is supernatural testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ in the life of his people. If you're married, a healthy marriage is one of the most profound witnesses to the world because it's so rare. It's rare. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus basically prayed to, his, to the Father that his disciples would be one, that they would get along and love each other. John 17, 21 says... He's praying to the Father. He says, Father, I pray that they all may be one, I and them and you and me. They may be perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So when God's people humble themselves before God and each other, they live in unity. When they live in unity, the world will know that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to earth in order to redeem people. Because unity is rare. We live in a fragmented world, would you not say? Everybody has an opinion, and they're very convinced that their opinion is correct, and anybody who disagrees with them is not only wrong, they're stupid, and they're evil. You don't have to read much Facebook posts to understand that. Unity and humility are very, very supernatural. So Paul now says, look, if you want an example, the example, the supreme example of humility, you need to look at Jesus Christ. The Greek language indicates that these verses 5 to 8 were probably a hymn. They were probably a song that was sung in the early church. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude of humility in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here's the principle. We should follow Jesus' example who laid aside his own rights in order to fulfill God's mission for his life. Let me say that again. We should follow Jesus' example who laid aside his own rights in order to fulfill God's mission for his life. So I'm going to try and unpack this. We'll do a little Greek here. Hopefully it won't be too intimidating. 
The word form of God, the word form is the Greek word morph, M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe. It means a form which completely expresses the being that underlies it. So this word form says it's the intrinsic essence, the underlying character of something. It's a continuous state of a thing in itself. What he's saying is God in his essence, his very nature, Jesus in his very nature is God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So all the attributes of God, all the essence of God, the very nature of God resided in Jesus' earthly body. Now there's another Greek word, means form, and the word is schema. S-C-E-H-M-A. Morphe refers to the essential character, the, ever, the non-changing part of a thing, Schema is the outward form or appearance of that thing which can change. Let me give you an illustration. John MacArthur used this, thought it was really good. He uses the illustration of manhood to make the distinction. I am a man. I was conceived as a man. I will possess manhood until the day I die. Manhood is my morphe. It is that which will never change. It is my essential being. However, that essential nature of manhood is revealed in many different schema or outward appearances. As a man, I began as an embryo. Then I was a baby. Then I was a child, a boy, a youth, a young man, an adult, and now I am an old man. <laughs> my morphe, my manhood, is essential. It will never change. My schema... My outward form changes as I grow in age. And I know that because Mr. Boyd, our 27-month-old grandson, his schema is different. He's two and change. But our morphe is identical. We are both men. Does that make sense? So Paul's talking about two things. He's talking about Jesus. His essential nature is God but he came in the form of humanity. So John says, the Apostle John says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, he's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and so on and so forth. So the word in Greek is logos, logos, which is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus had no beginning, he has no end, he always existed as God and with God as part of the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the creator of everything and is the only source of life. Paul and John both say that Jesus is God. And Paul says here, Jesus did not regard equality, identical nature with God. The word equality here means equal, means that which is exactly the same in size, quantity, quality, character, number. So when he's talking about equality, he says equality in every respect. Jesus is equal with God in every respect. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he, Christ, is the radiance of God the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
Colossians 1.15 says, And he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created by Christ, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, by Christ and for him. And he is before all things and in all things and in him all things hold together. So John and Paul are both arguing that Jesus is God, and one of the evidences of that is by his ability to create out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. He literally holds it all together, not just by creation, but by his sustaining. It's interesting, we, we think creation stopped at the end of six days, and in one sense it did. You ever thought about Jesus Christ, creator, when he walked on earth? He was creating when he was on earth. He fed the 5,000. Who created the fish and the bread for 5,000 people to eat? Right? He spoke life into dead limbs. He spoke life into dumb lips. He just spoke life and healing into diseased bodies. Three times he spoke life into dead bodies. He's a source of life, and he can speak life into things that are dead. Some of us are in situations that we go, there is no hope in this situation. It is deader than Elvis, and it's never going to change. That's not true. You serve a Savior who can speak life into any situation, no matter what it is at that point. The widow's son from the village of Nain, they were taking him to the grave. He was on the bier in the casket, and Jesus spoke a word, and he came to life. Jairus' daughter had just died, and Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. There is no situation that is beyond the power of, of our Savior. So in every sense, Jesus is equal with God, and he made that statement multiple times. In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. In John 14, 9, he's told Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 8, 58, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And those of you who know, know that I am is the name of God, the eternal self-existent one. And Paul says, even though he was God, even though he is God, even though he's always been God, he didn't hang on to that position. He didn't grasp it. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be clutched or prized or exploited for his own personal advantage. Jesus is God, but he didn't grasp and hang on to those privileges of God, but it says he emptied himself. I don't think we understand this because we don't understand how perfect heaven is. He left perfect heaven, came to sinful earth to be born as a baby. It's interesting, he wasn't born as a prince in a palace. He was born to a very, very poor family in a tiny nation that was oppressed and occupied by a foreign army. So in verse 7, Paul says, he didn't hang on to the privileges of deity, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, this is the really difficult doctrine of, of, of a really, it's called a hypostatic union. It's how can you have... Jesus fully God and Jesus fully man at the same time. But that's precisely what the Bible teaches. The word here is kenosis, the Greek word. It means self-emptying. It means renouncing your own rights for the benefit of others. Jesus divested himself of a tremendous amount of his rights, but he never divested himself of deity. He was always God. He did not lose his Godhood when he came to earth. He took on humanity and remained God at the same time. 
He did not cease to be God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, You want proof that he's God? He says, We saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus has been God, is God from all eternity, and he joins himself to sinful humanity at his incarnation, at his birth. Now, if you've ever seen a birth, it's, one of the, it's a phenomenal miracle. The word incarnation literally means in carcass. Carcass. You have a carcass. Your carcasses are sitting there. As long as you're breathing, I know you're a living carcass. If you're not, you're a corpse. Don't make me believe that you're a corpse today. So you've got to move around a little bit, right? Or in flesh. Jesus took on human flesh and blood. So simultaneously, he was fully God and fully man. And he had to be fully human in order to suffer and die, but he also had to be fully God in order to make that death an effective payment for sin. So one of the questions I've had, and I want to try and answer this for you, what exactly did Jesus give up in order to come to earth? I mean, what did he empty himself up? We say he emptied himself and came to earth. What did it cost him to come to earth? This is not a picnic down here, by the way, in case you're wondering. Well, first of all, he gave up the glories of heaven, and he veiled his own glory. Think about it. Jesus is in heaven, and he is fully God, and he's worshipped and adored by all the angels, and he comes down here, and he's hated and rejected and killed by men. He looked like an average, ordinary person. Isaiah 53 says, we couldn't tell he was God. There was nothing special about him. He just looked like you, know, you and me. He covered his glory. The only time he unveiled it was on the Mount of Transfiguration. One time. That's what John was referring to. He said, we saw this brilliant, blinding light, the glory of God. And that's why John says, we beheld his glory. So he gave up the glories of heaven. He gave up his independent authority as a member of the Trinity. You know, when you're God, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and you don't answer to anybody. When Jesus came to earth, he gave up that independent authority. Most of us love power. We're human, and we don't give up power without it being pried out of our cold, dead fingers. Jesus voluntarily let go of his independent authority and while he was on earth, he submitted himself to his Father in everything. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. On John 5.30, he said, I can't do anything in my own initiative. Number three, he chose to waive some of his divine attributes and prerogatives while on earth. He had all the powers of earth, he had all the powers of deity, but he chose not to use them. He said in Matthew 24.30, I don't even know the time I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. Well, that's when he was on earth. He set aside his omniscience, his ability to know everything. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, what did Satan tell him? What was the first temptation? He said, you're really hungry, Jesus. You're God. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Turn those stones into bread and eat them. Let me tell you, it wouldn't have taken me 40 days to turn stones into bread if I had that kind of power. <laughs> that happened by 12 noon today, right, on day one. But Jesus would never exercise his divine authority for his own benefit. He exercised divine authority for other people's benefit, but never his own benefit. Remember in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He's arrested, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he's flailing around, and he manages to cut off the ear of the high priest. He's trying to cut off his head, but the guy goes like this, and he whacks his ear off. Of course, Jesus created you know, the healing to put that ear back on. And Jesus said, Peter, 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 if I ask, the Father will give me 144,000 angels. But he didn't ask because he was committed to submit to his Father's will and go to the cross for us. He gave up the riches of heaven and he lived like a pauper on earth. Matthew 8, 20 says, Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. No place to sleep. He slept outside a good chunk of the time on the Mount of Olives. I want you to think about something. Think about all the things that Jesus did not have that he had to borrow. He borrowed a manger to be born in. He borrowed a boat from Peter to preach on the Sea of Galilee. He had to borrow five loaves and two fishes in order to feed 5,000 people. He had to borrow a bed from Mary and Martha to sleep in because he didn't have a home. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. He had to borrow a room to hold the Passover in. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The creator of everything on earth has nothing. Clothes on his back. He gave up a lot to come to earth. Even more profoundly, he gave up his father's favor and experienced his father's wrath. I want you to think about this. When he was in heaven, he had a face-to-face -face relationship with his father, right? It was intimate. There was no break in between. He gave that up to come to earth temporarily. While on the cross, he experienced the rejection of his father. One of his last seven words were what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father laid the wrath, his righteous wrath on him for our sins. It's interesting, he didn't say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? His father turned his back and poured out his wrath on his own son for our sins. It says he took the form of a bondservant, a doulos. A doulos is a bond slave. He became a bondservant. He came all the way down from heaven to be born as a slave. Now, a slave has no will of their own, right? A slave exists to do the will of their master. And Jesus submitted to the will of his Father in everything. He said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is real practical. Paul is saying, look, if Jesus came all the way from heaven, to serve and become a bondservant for our salvation, can't you serve each other? Husbands and wives, parents, fellow church members. We are to become like Christ. And he laid down everything for our benefit. So for heaven's sakes, do the dishes so your spouse doesn't have to. I mean, this is just real basic stuff, right? Real sacrifice. Yes, I know, doing the dishes. Real sacrifice, yeah. Running the vacuum cleaner. It's just really expensive, right? That'll cost you some blood. So his ultimate point of sacrifice, servanthood, was to die for our sins. It says he was made in the likeness of men. 
Now, this is, the, this is where he was like humanity in all respects with one profound difference. He had no sin. He was genuinely human, but he had no sin. He did not take on the limitations of sin. He was born of a human mother, but the Holy Spirit was the father. Joseph was his earthly father. He was a real man, flesh, blood, sweat, and tears. When you read about his life, you can tell that. He celebrated at the wedding in Cana. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. He became hungry in the wilderness. Uh, after 40 days, he felt extreme thirst on the cross. He was so exhausted, he fell asleep in a storm on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. He felt the loneliness of being forsaken by his father. He felt abandoned by his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas and the Roman shoulders showed up. All of his disciples did what? Fled. They left. They ran and abandoned him and left him. He took on humanity so that he could understand what we live like, so we could understand our weaknesses. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews is very comforting. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So a priest is a go-between, right? A priest is a mediator. I'll never forget years ago, I got into a beef with somebody over some real estate transactions, this is decades ago, and had a mediator. And he would shuttle between us and the opposing party down the hall, you know, and they were in one room, we were in the other room, and he'd come back and say, well, here's what they're willing to accept. And we said, my partner and I said, well, that's not really had in mind, and then blah, blah, blah. So they mediate. They represent us to them and them to us. That's a mediator's job, to represent both sides for each other. And Jesus is our mediator. He goes between us and God, yes? And he represents our condition to God, and he represents God's demands to us. For Jesus to really be a mediator, he has to understand us. And he does understand us because he came to earth, and he sweat and bled and cried and died and got tired like you do and got tempted with everything you get tempted with, he understood what exhaustion is. He understood, I'm sure he got tempted to lose his temper with his disciples on more than once. He never, ever sinned. He was fully human, but he understands what we struggle with. And the writer to Hebrews says, you can bring your burdens and your brokenness and your everything to Jesus because he does understand. He's not sitting in an ivory tower in heaven. He understands what it's like to be human. And that's very, very comforting. There's nothing that happened in my life that Jesus hasn't experienced and comprehends. He did not inherit the sin nature, but he was tempted by Satan severely, just like you were tempted. So he understands temptation. The first, very beginning of his ministry, he's led into the wilderness for 40 days without food by the Spirit for the specific purpose of being tempted by Satan. And he's tempted in every way you get tempted. Three ways. He was tempted by the lust of the flesh. You know, he's hungry. And Satan says, well, just turn these stones into bread. He's tempted by the lust of the eyes, which we do. Satan says, if you jump off the pinnacle of the temple, everybody will think you're super cool. 
I mean, it'll be great, right? And angels will rescue you. And he's tempted by the pride of life. Satan says, if you worship me, man, you'll rule the world. And Satan uses those exact temptations on us today, doesn't he? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Everything that he tempted us with, he tempted Jesus with. Jesus never sinned, so he's qualified to make that payment for our sins. Verse 9, or verse 8. He says, in being found in appearance as a man, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's the principle. Humility is believing and obeying God's word and putting others' needs before your own. Humility is believing and obeying God's words and putting others' needs before your own. By the way, if you don't believe and obey God's word, you will not put others' needs in front of your own. You will seek to meet your needs at their expense. Now, it says he, he appeared like a man. Now, this is this word schema. It means he, 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 his outward appearance was like a man, but it could change. He looked like an ordinary human being. Matter of fact, they didn't understand how come this ordinary-looking guy could do all these miracles. They're going, this guy's just like you and me. He sweats, he bleeds when he got cut, he gets tired. How can this ordinary guy do all these miracles? Well, he was God and man at the same time. Two natures, divine and human, in flesh at the same time. But he said he humbled himself, and he chose to humble himself. Believe me, if you and I were in his position in heaven and we experienced the worship of the angels, we would have never come down to this cesspool. Never. We wouldn't have done it. But sometime in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided that Jesus would come to earth to pay our sin debt. And we hadn't even been created yet. And it says Jesus chose to be obedient to the point of death on a cross. And he wasn't forced to do it. He volunteered to do it. John 14, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that one what? Lay down your life for your friends... Jesus did that voluntarily in John 10, 17. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And he did that because he loved us. By the way, crucifixion was not a dignified death. It was the most disgraceful, humiliating, shameful, agonizing death. It wasn't even spoken of in polite company ever in that society. It was reserved for the lowest of criminals and enemies of the state. It often took two to three days to die. You often died of, generally of asphyxiation. So what we're looking at is Christ's descent. These verses cover his descent, his humiliation, verses 5 to 8. In God's economy, the way up is to first go down. So Christ is going down, humiliating, voluntary humiliation, verse 5 to 8. And now we're going to shift into verses 9 to 11, where God exalts him. As a result of his humiliation, he's exalted. This is God's pattern for Christ. It's also God's pattern for us. And it runs absolutely counter to what the world says. The principle is stated in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, God's kingdom is full of paradoxes. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, be last. 
here, right? If you want to receive, give first. If you want to find your life for all eternity, lose it here on earth. If you want to be justified by God, begin by confessing your guilt, not by defending your righteousness. If you want to be rich in God's kingdom, be poor in spirit here. I mean, it's all paradox because we're talking about two kingdoms, heavenly kingdom, earthly kingdom. Where is your treasure? Here? Enjoy it. You don't have many years left. None of us do. You get a few decades on planet Earth, maybe six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it is. You won't even like the last one, right? <laughs> Some of you look like you don't like it now, and I hope you're not at the last one. I mean, just saying, you know, right? I mean, I could really go there, but I'm not going to go there. So the paradoxes of, of the kingdom of God are, you, if you want to go up with God's kingdom, you go down first. You choose to humble yourselves in this life, and God does the exalting. If you choose to exalt yourself here, God will do the humbling. And that's painful. Verse 9. Because Christ came and humbled himself for the benefit of us by laying down his life, coming from heaven to earth as a human, as a slave, dying, and dying the worst death possible on the cross. That's all the way down, it says in verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Here's the principle. When you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up in his time and his way. We don't like that last phrase, in his time and his way. When you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up in his time and his way. So Jesus came from heaven all the way down to dying as a criminal on a cross, and that was the bottom. That's as low as you can go. And then God started to exalt him, and the source of that exaltation was God himself. And God the Father bestowed, which means he gifted him, gifted his son with exaltation. And the word highly exalted, highly exalted, the Greek word is there, hooper, H-U-P-E-R. We would say hyper. If you want it in the vernacular, it's super. He super exalted Jesus, highly lifted Jesus up. And he began his exaltation with the resurrection. The resurrection... You know, we sing this song, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. Acts 5.30 says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So in the grave, death is as low as you can go and God began to exalt him by supernaturally raising him from the dead. And resurrection, of course, conquers sin and death. The second step on the way up was the ascension. He left earth and went into heaven. Acts 1.9 says, And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have such a great high priest who has, quote, passed through the heavens. Now, passed through the heavens literally means passed through the dimensions. The dimensions. Most of us think of heaven as a physical place, don't we? And we think that heaven is someplace physically far away from earth. Heaven exists outside the space-time dimension. We have three space dimensions and one of time, and they're interconnected. That's why we call it space and time. I won't get distracted on that. But heaven exists outside the limited realm of space and time. So when Jesus 
ascended into heaven, he ascended through the dimensions. And the next step was his coronation. Resurrection, ascension, coronation. Mark 16, 19. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 5.31 says, He is the one whom God exalted at his right hand. So God the Father resurrected his son, ascended, and then sat him down at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God is a symbol of place of power and authority. I don't know if you've seen any old paintings. We do the same thing today. Being proximate to power is important. If you look at the president and you look at these photos in, of our uh, um, leaders, everybody wants to be close to the president, right? I mean, just proximity. When you're signing legislation, when the president's signing landmark legislation, everybody wants to be in the picture. Someone will even steal a pen, you know, that got signed and keep it for their mementos. So this proximity thing is access to power. Well, the same thing is true. God the Father is on the throne. And the right hand was the place of power and authority, and there's only one person at the right hand of God. And that's Jesus, the Son, right? The rule and authority is supreme. Now, it says he sat down. When you sit down, hopefully you'll sit down when your work is done. At least when I was a kid, my mother never sat down until the work was finished. Of course, then she'd fall asleep immediately, right? So, yeah, we're there. We are so there. So when Jesus sat down, he said, the, my mission is accomplished. Sin's been paid for. Death is conquered. Satan's been defeated. I've accomplished the earthly mission. So he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And verse 10 tells us the purpose of that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the principle. Everyone, everywhere, will worship Jesus as Lord, either by choice in this life or by compulsion in the next one. Everyone, everywhere, will worship Jesus as Lord, either by choice in this life or by compulsion in the next one. And I've talked to people who go, I don't bow the knee to anybody. And I say, well, you got a problem. I say, what's that? God will outlive you. And you're going to face him someday. And when you face him, either Jesus is your advocate or you're going to face him as the judge. Because Jesus is the judge. All authority has been given to him. So let's talk about this. The name Jesus means Savior. It's the name that referred to Jesus' work as the one who saved his people from their sins. We sing this praise chorus, right? Jesus' name above all names. That's really not the context here. The name above all names is not simply Jesus. It's Jesus is Lord. That's the name above all names. Lord means owner. Lord means master. Lord means supreme ruler. Lord means the one who owns and controls everything and everyone all the time, everywhere. That was the phrase of the first church. Jesus is Lord. Jesus declared in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He didn't say authority over everyone except Brad Hannock. No. He said 
All authority has been given to me because I sacrificed my life on the cross. The Father has delegated authority to me. All authority has been given to me everywhere. It is impossible to accept Jesus as Savior and not submit to him as Lord, as Master, as Owner. There's nothing in Scripture that says, Jesus is going to save my sins, but I'm still going to run my life. No. If you're accepting Jesus as Savior, you're saying, you're in charge of my life, period. Savior refers to his humiliation, his suffering, his dying for the sins of the world. Many, many times Christians, churches, focus on the cross, which is appropriate, on Christ's humiliation, on his suffering and death. Matter of fact, if you go to some churches I've been in, the only time you see Jesus, he's on a cross, right? And he's bleeding. And he seems to be stuck there. Like, he can't get off the cross, and that's where it all ends, his death. That's only half the story. The other half, which we've just gone through, is Christ's exaltation, the exaltation of the Son, his resurrection, ascension, and coronation. Ephesians 1.20 says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the life to come. And there's a lot of people that say, well, yeah, okay, I need saving. I'm a sinner. I'll ask Jesus to forgive my sins, but I'm still going to drive the bus. If he's your Savior, he's your Lord, or he's not your Savior. And that's where human ego gets in the way and goes, I can run my own life. You're not going to run it the way God wants it run in the flesh. You will run it into the ditch. And I'm proof positive of that. Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is Lord of me. Jesus is Lord of every area of my life. So when I had a couple of uh, detached retinas 20 years ago and four years ago, I had to make a decision whether God owned my eyes or not. I mean, what about if he, he wanted me to be blind in one eye? Was that okay? Of course, I said, I'm really not in charge of that, Lord. These eyes belong to you. It took me two days to get there. And then when you have COVID and you can't get out of a chair, you say, well, I guess this body does belong to you. And he says, yes, I bought it and I paid for it. It belongs to me. I live in it. If I live in it, I'm in control of it. By the way, when you surrender, there's freedom in that because God knows much better how to run your life than you know how to run your life. It says, every knee shall bow. That means submission and subjection. Bowing down is something you do to someone you consider superior to you. And the only one we're commanded to bow down to is Almighty God. That's who we're commanded to bow down to. And our human pride hates to bow down to anybody. Doesn't it? We want them to bow down to us. We don't want to bow down to them. Bowing here means worship. It says every knee will worship, will bow down in submission to Jesus Christ, either voluntarily or joyfully or involuntarily and in agony. Which means Nero will bow, Stalin will bow, Hitler will bow, Muhammad will bow, Buddha will bow, Satan will bow, you will bow, and most importantly, I will bow. You look in the mirror and say, I will bow. 
Now, you can either do that today, every day, or you can wait to be forced to later on because everyone's going to bow. It's much easier, by the way, to bow every day. And just practically, one of the best ways you can bow every day is when you get out of bed, you say, Lord, this is your day. This is a gift. The fact that you woke up was a gift. You didn't have to wake up. You could have died in your sleep, right? So today is a gift. And if it's a gift, God has a plan for you today. And if God has a plan for you today, wouldn't it be smart to ask him what it is? Before three in the afternoon when the thing's in the ditch. I have found it's really wise, before I really get up and get going too much, to say, Lord, what do you have in mind for today? What's your agenda for today? Might I listen to your voice today and pay attention to what you have for me today? Because you have a plan for me today. That's a real practical way of bowing. You're simply saying, God, you're in charge of today. And I want what you want today because your plan for today is better than mine. And I think my plans are really good. I think my plans are brilliant, but his plans are better and they don't always agree with mine. They seldom agree with mine. So bowing says, Lord, here's the calendar. I wrote down what I want to get done today. You know, 80% of it's going to get interrupted anyway because you're going to get phone calls. But you already know all that, so I surrender this day to you and my attitudes and all those things. That's a real practical way of bowing. And it says everyone's going to bow no matter the location. Those in heaven, well, people residing in heaven are obviously angels right now. Someday redeemed human beings will be there. And we're going to joyfully worship Jesus Christ as king and ruler and master. He says those on earth will bow. Some on earth will reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. And some on earth, by the grace of God, will choose to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says under the earth, and that's a reference to hell. Hell is populated by humans who have rejected God's gracious offer of salvation, populated by Satan, by demons, by fallen angels who have followed Satan as rebellion against God. But Paul says, regardless of final destination, everyone will bow in submission, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will acknowledge that he is the supreme ruler, master, sovereign, owner, king of everything, and that will bring glory to God the Father. You know, if you know something's inevitable, wouldn't it make sense to plan for it? If you know something is going to happen, wouldn't it make sense to plan for it? Paul's saying this is inevitable. Why don't you choose to bow today in time and experience all the benefits of knowing Jesus as Lord, as opposed to being forced to bow in rebellion when it's too late to do anything about it. God does all things for his glory. He created the universe for his glory. And glory is the visible expression of everything God is. You can look at the universe and look at the stars and look at the sun. Those are all expressions of God's glory. But the greatest expression of God's glory is the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's why I highly recommend every day, spend 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, start with 10 minutes reading God's Word. Start with the Gospel of John. You want to know what Jesus is like? Spend 10 minutes reading the Gospel of John and you'll find out what Jesus is like. And then you know what God is like. Being as how 
eternity is staring us in the face, it seems to me that that would be a very prudent idea. Scripture commands it, therefore it's not just prudent, it's uh, absolutely mandatory. The gospel is the good news that sinful man, you and I, can be reconciled to holy God through the death and resurrection of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus loved his Father, and he loved us, and he chose to obey his Father and humble himself and come all the way from highest heaven down to the lowest point on earth. He laid down his life, as Pastor Andrew talked about this morning, and died the death of a criminal by crucifixion, the guilty for the innocent. Paul says, in light of all that, practically speaking, you and I are called to do the same thing. To follow his example of humility and surrender our rights in order to serve others. And you know, many of you are doing that. You know one of the best ways to do that? Have a child. Yes? What do you do? You get up at 2 a.m. because they need to be changed or fed, right? That's laying down your rights to sleep course, they're going to keep screaming until you do it anyway, so make a virtue of necessity and just, right, get up and do it. And I'm trying to give you real practical examples. Surrender our rights in order to serve others. When we choose to humble ourselves before God and serve others, God will lift us up, but he'll lift us up in his time, his place, when he knows we can handle it in order to accomplish his purposes for us. So this is probably the most profound example in Scripture, the most profound illustration, not illustration of humility, which was Paul's whole point. He gave us the hypostatic union, God and man, the theological background, fully God, fully man, fully deity, fully human, but the purpose of it was to give us an illustration of how we should humble ourselves and serve others, and God then will take care of our position going forward. Okay, let me summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. Thank you for staying with me. This was just steak all the way. There was no, nothing else but meat here. Point one, we should follow Jesus' example who laid aside his own rights in order to fulfill God's mission for his life. Number two, humility is believing and obeying God's word and putting others' needs before your own. Number three, when you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up in his time and his way. And number four, everyone, everywhere will worship Jesus as Lord, either by choice in this life or by compulsion in the next one. You know, when you do serve each other and you serve each other out of genuine humility, you not only get unity, but you get tremendous peace. It really does make relationships work. I've never met anybody yet who said, I'm going to divorce my spouse because they serve me so well. Because they lay down their desires and, and make my life better. Humility is the, is the path that God's called us to, and the benefits are staggering. So follow Jesus' example. I love you all. Thank you for listening. Now that you know, do it.
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.